Our scripture reading for today is 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but the one who was begotten of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we're of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. This is the word of the Lord. We've been savoring this letter from 1 John for weeks. This is the tail end of the the letter, the conclusion. And uh, if you're just joining us, you can find the whole series on our website, and I hope that'll be encouraging to you. The letter ends as a comedy. The whole Bible, in fact, all 66 books, it's a library, Biblia, the Greek word library, this library of books, it, they all end in a comedy. When I say comedy, I don't mean episode of AP Bio or reruns of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I mean comedy as in a classical literary sense that something starts out low and it ends very high. The difference between a comedy and a tragedy is that a tragedy starts out very high and it ends very low. Question. Is the human experience comedy or a tragedy? Well, if you are united to Christ, you believe in the resurrection, you are a child of God as the Apostle does, as we do, then life is a comedy. doesn't mean we laugh our way through it, but it means that the struggle is real, but this is ending very high. If, however, you don't believe in the resurrection and Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then it doesn't matter how beautiful and comfortable and wonderful life is for you. The struggle is still real. And we all have a common enemy called time. And time is slowly stealing away everything that is precious, our health and our vitality, eventually our very breath. And in the end, no matter how high your life is, it ends very low in darkness and death and the grave. So it's a tragedy. And the apostle knows this. And, he, and the whole purpose he wrote the letter, which is what I've been saying for multiple weeks, is he wants the children of God to be people of joy in a world that drains joy. He wants us to have stability and buoyancy in the soul. He doesn't want us to just get sucked into the sadness and the sorrow that, is, that plagues the world that we live in. And therefore, he's written this letter. It ends very intentionally in a comedy. And we're going to look at these three statements here. Three statements that start with, we know, we know, we know. And that's how he ends the letter. So we're going to look at three things that, as Christians, we know. We know who we are. We know where we are. And we know where our life is going. So firstly, we know who we are. We're born of God. He starts in verse 18. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because that was a big emphasis in last week's sermon. But for the purpose of uh, clarity and context, I'll say a couple things. We know who we are. We're children of God. We're born of God. It says, if we are children of God, we don't go on sinning. And the point of him making that statement at the end of his letter is not so that we look at the people sitting in the chairs next to us and go, hmm, how are they doing? Uh, He's written this so that we will look at this and say, okay, I'm looking at the man in the mirror telling him to change his ways. 
but he can't change his ways. He needs the Spirit of God to change his ways. This is about introspection and reflection and confession and trust. So he says this for the purpose of getting us to see that there are two realms, two dominions, two ways of living life, ultimately two allegiances. So whenever the apostle is talking about sin, sinfulness in the church, sinfulness in the life of the believer, it's not merely a commentary on your activity. It is provoking you to consider your allegiance because activity flows from allegiance. That's why in the Greek, it's in English, keep on sinning. In the Greek, the essence is it's an unbroken sequence. You could also translate it that way and just say the one who is, belongs to God, they do not sin in an unbroken sequence. The suggestion meaning that your allegiance in your heart and your love is not with God, but you are your own God, essentially. So uh, he, he makes this comment, and then it goes on to say at this second half of that verse that uh, Jesus Christ, the only begotten of God, protects the children of God, and uses this phrase and says, the evil one does not touch them. It'd be nice if that meant we just woke up and said, not today, Satan, and nothing ever touched us. Amazing. Touch, uh, here, means uh, he can't cling, grasp, hold on to. There's only one other time, again, I'm not going to give you all the Greek, but there's, another, there's only one other instance where John uses this word touch in this, uh, the tense in the Greek, and it's actually the resurrection. When Mary sees the resurrected Jesus, she, she grabs him and she's hugging him and she's clinging to him, and Jesus says, don't touch me, Mary. Don't cling to me. Don't grasp me. The, the essence is she's already doing it. She's already hugging him because she's thrilled. And Jesus, if this is a term of endearment, he's not saying, don't touch me, woman. He's saying, Mary, you've got to stop clinging to me. You've got to let me go because my mission is going to continue. My earthly mission is done. My heavenly mission is continuing. I must ascend to my father. So Mary's already clinging. And Jesus is like, you need to stop the clinging. That's the word touch. That's the same word here. So when he says the devil can't touch you, he's saying he can't, if you're born of God, the struggle is real. You and I will struggle with our sin. But the point is that we struggle. The one who is not born of God, there's no struggle. And the church, since the beginning, has always been filled with both kinds of people. Those who are born of God and busy churchgoers who need the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Because for them, there's no struggle. doesn't matter. The preacher can preach till he's blue in the face and we can read and we can do all sorts of things and they're just kind of like, I'm good. In fact, I'm so comfortable with this sin that's in my life, I think Jesus is fine with it as well. So this is the context here where John's like, listen, we know who we are. This is a cause and effect situation. If you're preaching the scandalous grace of Jesus, then you want to resemble Jesus, and we've been talking about that for weeks. So he, he goes on to use this language. The other significance of him using a language of the enemy, the evil one can't touch you, can't cling to you, is because that's a consistent idea throughout all of the wisdom literature, if you read through the Proverbs, you've got this beautiful humanity contrasted with like this beast-like, impulse-driven, you know, way of living where, where the fool, all throughout the Proverbs, is sort of described almost in animalistic ways. It's like you're just driven around by your impulses and your appetites versus the righteous in Proverbs is like, well, actually, I'm, I still have all these appetites that may not be aligned with the wisdom and the ways of God, but I care about that. So I'm, I'm trusting in the Spirit of God to do reform uh, in my life. So John gives this language of not being grasped. And again, a couple other quick references for you to give context to this. In, in, in his gospel, John's gospel, 
uh, chapter 10, he records that Jesus says that we are in the grasp of God and no one can pluck us out. So you see, he's mindful of whose grasp we're in. If I'm in the grasp of God, I can't be in the grasp of the enemy living in habitual sin. This doesn't make sense. Further, in John 17, he records Jesus' prayer. And when Jesus prays his priestly prayer, if you read through it in John 17, Jesus uses language like this. Father, Holy Father, I pray for those that you would keep those you've given me. I don't pray that you would take them out of the world. I pray that you would keep them from the evil one. Again, this language about grasping and keeping. And so all of this keeping language makes us think about the imagery of the great shepherd who is keeping his flock and keeping his sheep. And um, there's a beautiful nourishment that's there. So if you think about the famous Psalm 23 about the, the great shepherd who's doing the keeping, it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Right? He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Sure, uh, he goes on to say, um, he uh, sets a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So the one who's keeping, the one who's clinging, is the one who's nourishing. The shepherd in the midst of your enemies, when nothing's good and life is terrible and, you know, things are going on that are sucking the joy and the happiness and the, the peace out of your heart like a low-hanging gray sky, the great shepherd says, you know, let's have lunch. He sets a table for me in the presence of my enemies. He's nourishing you in the presence of problems, in the presence of stresses, in the presence of anxieties. So, because the apostle is aware of all of this keeping language and the priestly prayer and the great shepherd and whose grasp we're in, he says, listen, the evil one can't grasp you. You're already grasped. So we know who we are. And knowing who we are uh, as image bearers of God, it means that, yes, of course, the struggle with sin is there, but there is a deep, unquestionable trust transfer that has taken place, and we, as children of God, desire the ways of God. Let's move on. So, we know who we are. Secondly, we know where we are. And you see this in verse 19. He says, well, we're from God. And and where are we? We're in a world that lies in the power of the evil one. So we want to unpack this because it's pretty important. Because, again, the purpose he wrote the letter is for you and I to have joy. So we have to understand where we are. And we can never have true rest unless we can see this and be able to say this. Yes, this world lies in the power of the evil one. It's going to affect our posture, and it's going to uh, affect the way in which we uh, see our lives. What is he provoking us to consider? Well, if the world is in the power of the evil one, then am I uh, surprised by what's going on, constantly in a state of shock and awe, or rage, or outrage? Or am I saddened by it, appropriately saddened by it, but I'm not surprised by it? I'm not waking up shocked like everybody else is shocked. I, I, am, I have, there's a, a, a stability because even though it is sad, it is predictable. It is unsurprising. You see, the world, if you do not believe that Jesus Christ is a Savior who rose from the grave, who not only atoned our sins, but unites us by the power of His Spirit, and in the end of the gospel, Christ will return and restore all things. If you do not believe the essence of that message, then... The belief, the worldview, is something along the lines of, come on, guys, we're better than this. Come on, guys, do better. We gotta do better. I mean, if we could just if if we could just educate people, 
Right? The problem is ignorance, and the solution is education. That's not what the Scripture presents. Scripture doesn't present, come on, guys, we're better than this. See, the cross of Jesus Christ, it comforts us. But before it comforts us, it confronts us. Because the cross says, we're not better than this. We're worse than we think. We're worse than we think because God Almighty had to come and die, and yet we are more loved than we can fathom because he came and died. He was willing to do it. So you see, this is, how, this is why John wants the Christian, and remember, think of their context, first century, Rome is right, has been you know, in power for a thousand years, and it's rising to levels of persecution the church can barely breathe, and they're living in this world. And John's like, you've got to understand where you are. You've got to know who you are, and you've got to understand where you are. And if you don't understand where you are, you're going to wake up just as shocked and surprised and outraged as everybody else. And whatever's causing the world to have anxiety, it's going to cause you to have anxiety. There's going to be no difference. So John's like, dial it back, and let's just consider where we are so that we are precisely not surprised by this. But also, it's not an invitation for Christians to be angry pessimists. Right? We're not these angry, self-righteous pessimists where we sort of separate ourselves from the culture and say, yeah, uh, you know, you guys are disgusting. The Pharisees were constantly holding their noses in disgust of the culture. You know, kind of set, or you've got movements throughout Christianity where it's very monastic, sort of. You kind of pull back and say, we're going to, the church and, the, you know, the city is ugly and gross and we're going to be over here. We're just going to stay away from everyone. We don't want our kids a part of that. We don't, we're just going to live these isolated lives John's not calling for that. He's not calling for us to be disgusted by the culture. Because when the Pharisees are praying prayers like, thank God I'm not like that guy, that's a far cry from Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, what they deserved, what you and I deserve, is that on the cross that Jesus says, you guys are going to hell for this. What they didn't deserve was, Father, forgive them for this. So, we have to understand where we are and yet have an appropriate posture of love and grace and humble confidence as we integrate in the city, do mission in the city, and see ourselves not as these passive observers that say, ooh, gross, but just motivated to go in with a sense of, of, um, of love and care and mission without the burden of being the savior of the world on our own shoulders, which we certainly are not. So this is all sort of a significant language around uh, or significant processing around the world lying in the power of the evil one because he doesn't want them to um, he doesn't want them to be uh, confused and saddened constantly uh, by the way that the world is and the word here as I mentioned last week the world is cosmos which means the ordering of things so what he's saying is the ordering of things the way things are ordered life has been ordered so that God is omitted So we have a community that's ordered with God being omitted, or we can live our lives that way, have a nation that way, the world that way. So he's saying the entire world is ordered in a way that God, there is no God, we are our own gods, we're worshiping false gods, these kinds kinds of uh, things. And when he says this, that it's in the power of the evil one, it's helpful that you and I don't think that what that means is that um, the world being in the power of the evil one means that sin has manifested, you know, so intensely in all of our neighbors uh, it's not about intensity as much as it is about it being comprehensively throughout the whole world. And this is where we get hung up on things to say, 
well, I'm, suppo- I, you know, I'm morally superior than my neighbor. Well, as Christians, that, that, that may be true. However, we get ourselves into all kinds of problems when we make our Christian faith a morality game. Where, well, really, I'm succeeding as a believer if I somehow see myself a little more moral than the person who's next to me. Uh, from their point of view, we're both getting up, going to work, we're trying to raise our children, we're paying our taxes, and the kids are, you know, playing soccer. So from their point of view, they're like, what, what is this morality game about Christians being more self-righteous than the neighbor? For us, like, it's not about the intensity of sin. It's not that the world lies in the power of the evil one and everybody's an axe murderer. It's that the world lies in the power of the evil one and nobody cares to order their life about God. We are happy to order our lives with total indifference to God and go about the city and make wealth and have nice houses and live nice lives and have espresso in the park and just live our life in a sort of a Deborah Keller's term, a cosmic plagiarism. This great life that I've built, there is no God. I built it myself. We just kind of, it's, it's neo-babble, right? The monument unto, unto the human ego, living apart from God. And so this is what we, some of these things, it's not that he's trying to get us to think about, um, you know, the, the world is in the power of the evil one, and you're the good person on your street, but everybody else on your street is the squalor and the grub in the tub. It's not that, it's, uh, it's that we are to see that this is not a shot across the bow at the worst and the lowest. It's also a shot across the bow at who the culture would say are the best and the highest. It doesn't matter because it's this comprehensive indifference to God. We're just humming along without him. I had a uh, systematic theology prof. His name is Dr. Michael Allen. And when he was talking about um, eschatology, the study of the end times and things, the way he talked about it was he was saying, if we don't understand our place in the world as Christians, uh, then when we're thinking about where life is headed, we're thinking about eschatology, then we can fall into one of two camps. One is we just live isolated lives away from the world, or secondly, this idea that we have to Christianify uh, the city, and that's, that's God's plan. But really, the church is in the middle where we're these ministers in the city. And what he had said was it was interesting that before World War I, many, many Christians held the view that, uh, you know, we're going to Christianify the world and then Christ is going to return. So they were premillennialists, right? It's like we're going to just, this world is going to reflect heaven and then Christ will return. And then World War I happens and a lot of Christians are like, hey, we're going to review our eschatology, right? To borrow from N.T. Wright, I was having a conversation with Peter Vlar and he was saying, he was listening to a teaching by N.T. Wright, he used the phrase, an over-realized eschatology. Get Christians in politics, get Christians at the top of all the businesses, Christianify everything and the world will be okay. And John is saying, the world lies in the power of the evil one. Unless we understand this, we will constantly be frustrated and saddened. And what he wants is to be at a place where we are tethered and anchored and not surprised, but also not indifferent. So if if over-realized eschatology is in one ditch, then I would submit that under-realized ecclesiology would be in the other ditch, where it's like, well, the mission of the church doesn't matter. We just sit back, and Jesus and God will do what he wants, because he's sovereign, and so nobody does any mission. We just sit back and say God is sovereign, and nobody does any any, uh, work for the poor or care or seeking justice and mercy in the city. We just sit back and say, the world's in the power of the evil one, so we're not going to get involved in that. But we see from what the apostle is teaching, what the first century church did, was they just lived with this desire to have a cross-shaped life that reflected and emulated uh, the goodness of Jesus. So, ultimately what we need here is the eyes of our heart to be opened so that we can see Jesus, see the beauty of God. And for any of you who are with us who've been exploring Christian faith, whether you're here today or you couldn't find, uh, you couldn't find where we're meeting and you've joined us online, if you're exploring Christian faith, I would invite you 
your prayer to be, oh God, would you open the eyes of my heart that I could see you? Uh, I think this is a good prayer because we can use reason to uh, consider Christian faith, consider the existence of God, consider the, uh, the reliability of the texts that give us the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But unlike Plato's philosophy, we can't just reason ourselves into faith. Uh, reason is good, but at the end of the day, faith is a gift. And you see, that's why John's using this kind of language. It's humbling. So as Christians, we don't go into the city like, uh-huh, the world is lying on the power of the evil one, but we have cracked the code. We've done nothing. We're here because we are recipients of scandalous grace. And that is the animating and motivating force for our mission in Kitchener-Waterloo and the desire to, you know, give a defense for the hope that we enjoy in Jesus. So let's move on to the last thing, which ties right into that. We know where we are, we, uh, we know who we are, and lastly, we know where our life is going. And... Uh, of course, we don't, know the, we don't know the details of where our life is going. All of us have challenges. We've woke up this morning and come here. And there's a number of, number of things in all of our lives that are unresolved. And we don't know how they're going to work out. We don't know where they're going. But in an ultimate sense, we do know exactly where life is going. And in an ultimate sense, we know that because we are the children of God, there are sure things that we cling to. They, they are, that's why John ends the letter going, we know, we know, we know. He's trying to orient us uh, to the thing that gives us like an anchoring stability. And so getting back to what I was saying at the beginning of the sermon, for us, church, our life is a comedy. It's not a tragedy. And in the end, uh, we ultimately know that God is our Father who will provide for us, will care for us. We have certain truths that are real. You can go for a walk and look at the birds and look at the flowers and be like, you know what, God's feeding them. He will take care of us. Take that to the bank. There's many promises in the scripture. Not that all the specific little situations you're facing this morning will work out precisely in the manner that you've prayed they would work out. But you know that in an ultimate sense, again, to borrow from Keller, he would say it this way, that God will answer in in prayer and give us everything that we need when we need it. And we would ask him for that if we knew everything that he knows. (laughs) Of course, we don't. And so we pray the best we can. But we know ultimately where our life is going. And verse 20 says that, you know, he, that uh, uh, we come to know him who is true and we're in him who's true. And he, Jesus Christ is God and eternal life. Eternal life in, uh, all throughout the Old Testament was used with the phrase unto the age. And so when Jesus started talking about eternal life in the New Testament, it was a term that would have been familiar with unto the age. And so we are living in an age now, and then there will be another age, eternal life, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, the, and uh, the return of all things. But we have to live in the here and now. So the life of the Christian is not just, well, I guess we just grit our teeth until that happens and muscle through. That's not why John wrote this letter. Go back to chapter 1. He's like, I want you to be people of joy. And so it, it has a day-to-day impact on us being these mobile temples going through uh, our workplaces and our campuses and wherever it is that we are with the sense of joy and bringing that sense of joy and reflecting the love and the care and the integrity of our God and Father onto you know, the sports fields and the patios and whatever else that it is that we're up to. John says that we know him and he keeps on using the word know which in the Greek is gnosko and gnosko means to know from experience. So it's not like I intellectually grasp this thing. It's that I'm experientially... Uh, I'm, I'm experiencing in a profound way 
the peace and the joy that comes with knowing that my life is actually tethered to something, even though everything else in life might be shifting. So each week as we pray that Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, how does it come? In an ultimate sense, we know He will bring it, Christ will bring it. And yet, in the here and now, you and I, by going out into the city on Monday and bringing our love and care, the reflection of God, uh, giving a defense for the hope that we enjoy, looking for those opportunities to share our faith or making opportunities to share our faith, these things, this is the way in which thy kingdom comes. The burden is not on you and I to be the savior of the city. We're not. But we are participants. The burden is not on you and I to bring ultimate justice. But we are participants. And so this recalibrates us with a real sense of humility and confidence um, as we live out this life unto the age. Because you see, we are slowly, slowly living into congruence of what Christ is ultimately bringing. So all of the commands in the New Testament are inviting us into that increasing congruence. So when you and I sin, we are now out of congruence. And so then, go back to the beginning of the letter, there's confession. He's like, okay, confess. So, conviction is good. Condemnation, not good. You're a child of God. Confess, realign. We just live in this place of constant realignment. Christ will ultimately bring it, and we're participants and ministers along the way. And so he wants us to have this experience. Now, We used to, as a family, go to uh, Florida, drive all the way down there, many times when the kids were little. And one year, there was this tremendous snowstorm, and we were in one of the northern states, and it was so terrible, we had to just stop overnight because there was, as I kept going, cars were in the ditch, more and more cars were in the ditch. And then when I saw a snowplow in the ditch, I was like, okay, we gotta, we gotta stop. And and sometimes we, we would like the Christian experience to be like, God's driving through the storm of life. We're the kids in the back eating snacks and watching movies. And woo, God's going to get us there. The storms just don't touch us. Go up a verse. Nothing touches us. Like we would love it if that was the experience. And praise God, we all have testimonies of certain seasons in life when it felt that way. God really carried me through the storm. But most of Christian experience is not like being the kids in the back. It's like white knuckling it from the driver's seat with the snow in your face, looking at the GPS like, please get me there. I'm trusting you to get me there. And so we need the GPS, the God's positioning system, to be like, please God, get me there. It's quite often it feels this way. And so John is saying, we know where, who we are, we know where we are, and we know where ultimately where this thing is going. Our God is going to get us there. That's why he ends it in verse 21. It seems like an interesting way to end the letter. Oh, by the way, little children, keep yourself from idols. Well, of course he would say that. He's not tagging it on for no reason. What will steal your joy more than taking some good little thing, making that the ultimate thing? That is, that will, nothing will steal your joy like putting your trust in something that time itself is taking away from you. We have to put our joy, ultimately... Our trust in in God and in Christ alone so that when everything is burning and melting and going on fire and nothing is working out, that in the midst of everything just crumbling to the ground, we are actually being pushed, pushed by the suffering towards our hope. 
If you don't tether yourself to the hope, the suffering is pushing you and stealing away that small little thing that you've made your hope. And so that's why he ends the letter like that, little children. And you and I are like, you know, I don't have idols, I don't deny God. We don't, I, I believe you, but we dethrone him all the time. You can treat God, it, as for Christians, it's so easy for us to treat God like he's something that we add to our shelf. I got my life, I got this, I got my friendships, I got my relationships, I got my career, I got all these things moving. I got all this stuff happening. I'm a North American. See my busy badge? Oh, baby, I got a busy badge. So I got all these things going. Hey, how's it going? Oh, man, it's crazy right now. Hey, how's work? We're so busy right now. How's school? Oh, it's insane right now. Everybody's at level nine all the time. And while we're all at level nine all the time... We're like, oh, and then I've got my faith in God, so I'm just going to add God to the shelf with everything else. And what John is saying is, little children, God is the shelf. As the apostle closes the letter, he's painting this vivid image, born of God. You and I have had our hearts and our minds untangled from the way that the world is ordered. We were saved, but we're not taken out of it. We're being sent into it. Sent into it so that by giving a defense for the hope that we enjoy in Jesus Christ, this unsinkable joy, this rest in the world that is at chronic at rest, it's not my job. It is my job as the preacher, but don't see it as my job. It is our call. And so we're being sent in. That the same God who untangled us and brought us out, he will, through our testimony, bring others out. We know who we are. We know where we are. We know where our life is going. We praise God and we live to his glory. Let's pray.